Thanks for downloading this podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy wherever they get their podcasts. Midweek Motorsport. News, features, special guests, and analysis from the experts. Formula One, sports car and endurance racing, rallying, touring cars and bikes. If it has wheels and an engine and they keep score, it's on Midweek Motorsport. Hello everybody and welcome to Midweek Motorsport, it's Series 16, Episode 28, the one after the football, which didn't come home, but Tim Gray has, and he's up in London, although having not seen any um, sport other than uh, the kick bladder uh, for the last seven weeks, he's decided not to contribute tonight. So, on a packed programme tonight, John, we will have, well, all the usual features, John, uh, including uh, our contributors... Uh, we'll have uh, the film review as well. And in the second half of tonight's programme, we'll have a follow-up to our top story, which requires your input. Oh, it actually requires it, because John DeGeese from Sportscar365 is going to join us, and he and I could talk about Sportscar racing forever and a day. But it would be nice if you had some input to that. Convergence, LMDH... LMH, Global Prototypes, that's what we're calling it. And that's the big interview at 9 o'clock tonight. It's more like a big discussion. Hashtag RSL Converge if you want to get involved in that tonight. Uh, the film interview, the film review will be uh, featuring a brand new movie documentary called Rookie Season. It's all about Rebel Rock Racing in the Michelin Pilot Challenge. And we have its director, uh, Adrian Bonfento, and the man behind Rebel Rock Racing, its team manager, and the driving force, Robin Liddell. Spoke to them earlier in the week, and you can hear their thoughts on that movie, which is out on release today. I promised last week that when we heard the breaking news about Carlos Reutemann having lost his fight with illness, that we would do a proper look back and celebration of his life. Andrew Marriott has been speaking to us about that and we'll have that towards the end of the first hour of tonight's programme. Plus all the motorsport news from around the world, which starts in a moment or two's time after we've done some of your tweets. Uh, Hello to James Brown. Not that one. He says he's EFA this evening. He's marshalling at the Castlecombe 10K foot race and we'll be catching up on the podcast. Uh, Jet is not on dad taxi duties tonight. So on the edge of his seat eating cake, let there be cake. Sarah Rigby, hopefully in home, at home in time from work. Depends how smoothly the evening clinic runs. Otherwise, uh, catching up with the podcast or maybe listening uh, on the way home. Uh, sad news for Otter FR. He's listening live tonight, which is not the sad news, but he's thinking of his father-in-law, who sadly died this week. And 
the man loved his children, grandchildren, dog, and Ford car convertible, says Otter. Our condolences to you uh, and the family, and your wife in particular, Otter. Um, chin up and be strong for your missus. Uh, we're all thinking about you, of course. Uh, hello to Matt Endine, who's last minute working and packing, ready to do official duties at the British Grand Prix from Thursday, from tomorrow onwards. Hello to Jay Atkinson, to Mickey Heth, uh, who's listening in tonight, to Brody, who's on EFAs for tonight's show. Final gloss over the notes before another exam tomorrow. So the podcast tomorrow evening to decompress. Hope you got your revision okay there. Uh, Blue, Blue Fiend is EFAs because he's in Atlanta uh, for Porsche technical training, catching up this evening Atlanta time over a few pints. What I want to know is, are you at the hotel right next to Porsche Atlanta? They do a very good old-fashioned in the rooftop bar there. Lovely place to say hello to Daniel, uh, to Stephen Lloyd, li- listening live, looking forward to more great banter, uh, to the Sim Racing Bar Steward on the podcast due to what work commitments this week. Uh, and still tuning the new beer shakers on the Sim Rig. Uh, Kevin Payne, pre-mate show meal tonight was cotton chips from the brilliant Silver Sea and Frimley Green. Booked his flights for Super Sebring next March. All the signs of a patch show tonight, he says. I think so. Chris Suku, following a warm spicy salad, I'll be off to the study for some pottering and listening live tonight. Dave Olcock, looking forward to tonight. Hope Dolly's well away from the network cable snack bar. Yes, absolutely. Shoehorns required? Maybe, I think so. And Alex Organ, looking forward to Pac Joe as well this evening. No airfares, a lovely salmon, ratatouille, a tiny roasty with garlic courgette ribbons to start the evening off. That's fantastic. Uh, Dave Hamilton, David Hamilton, not that one. Uh, just saw Adenauer was hit by flooding this evening. Hopefully people around the Nürburgring and the Eiffel areas are all safe and well. Carol Brink listening in from Monterey, California. Tuning in live, at least for the first hour, right turn lover. Hello, RTL. Elliot Lindemund, just back from a weekend of Moto America, Laguna Seca, listening live tonight. As is Jules Outerbridge, firing up the kettle. Rare opportunity to listen to the full two hours under the Silverstone sunshine. It's lovely in uh, Northamptonshire at the moment. John the race fan, no AFAs this week, enjoying the usual features whilst uh, driving across town. Spooner in Orange, already at Silverstone. Uh, hello to the Orange Army who are tuned in tonight at Silverstone. AFAs for Ian McCarthy catching up in the morning. Uh, really enjoyed the double header on the NSL with the two Pete's at the weekend. Uh, hello to uh, Sir Phil, to John McCarthy, to Alan Prosser. Uh, and oh Sarah Rigby has got home listening in live thanks for the shout out just I have shuffled my papers let's get cracking with the top story on Midweek Motorsport all the latest motorsport news from around the world Midweek Motorsport and as the news bed fades off gently into the distance our top story tonight is one of convergence. Nick Damon and Shea Adam both with us. Hello, Shea. Hello. Hello, Nick. Good evening, John. Good evening, Shea. Good evening, everybody. Good evening, Tim, who's lurking below the top. 
He is, he is a lurker this evening. That's exactly what he is doing. Uh, we reported last week that uh, it was happening. We now know a bit more detail, Nick, about how it's going to happen and the technicalities of it all. And it seems as though IMSA and the ACO are going to look after their own sides of things and anybody who wants to take part in the quote-unquote other side of the Atlantic or the other side of the series, they will have to present themselves for a specific BOP, which actually is is rather more sensible than I was expecting. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a sensible way of doing it because obviously the, there's only going to be uh, two types of car in the WEC in Le Mans. However, of course, over in uh, IMSA, it's going to be one version, just the NGH, so as it stands. I know the hypercars aren't allowed, and obviously that could change. You know, it might be the Glickenhaus getting, you don't know. Um, so it makes perfect sense. The only issue probably comes down uh, to when we get to Le Mans, and they've got some invites for the various manufacturers who are chomping at the bit, and they've got a completely different BOP when they go to um, the, into Europe than they had in the States. It makes sense to me, though, Cher, that um, anybody who wants to go to race in IMSA has to go and use the Sauber facilities and get the aero balance and the BOP done there for the WEC and has to go to Winchia in the US, which is where all the IMSA BOPs have done. So basically, all we're seeing is you've got to do the same as the people who are already in that championship that you're going to. As I said, rather more sensible than (laughs) what normally happens in motorsport. Yeah, and it makes so much more sense than for them to say, well, we're going to spec your cars with you and let us spec our cars and then hope that the BOPs are going to be the same. No, no, no. If you're doing it in a controlled environment Mm. where it's the same people setting it in the exact same conditions, then everything should be more fair, right? And it does mean that you're benchmarking the the non-championship cars, that the championship hasn't had the technical input in against the cars that are already there. And I don't, Nick, have any problem with that at all. And I, and I don't think anybody else does. Nope. I think, I think it does sound like a, uh, a good basis. Um, of course, the devil's in the detail of all these things, you know, and, and uh, yeah, I think let's, let's, be, let's treat it as positively as possible and, and, and park our cynical brains. But obviously there's okay. going to be elements of, you know, people are going to cry foul who suddenly the IPA cars are suddenly much quicker at Le Mans um, than the LMDHs when they should be balanced. I, I, I think there's so many things to look into here and so many of the manufacturers have a vested interest. I think it has to work. It has to work. This is the best opportunity we've had for ages. We'll take your thoughts on this. Uh, at Spec Your Team, use the hashtag RSL Converge, all one word, RSL Converge. John Daggies from... Uh, the founder and managing editor of Sportscar 365, joining us just after 9 o'clock here in the UK, just after 4 o'clock Eastern time. And we'll run through a bit more of the detail on this. Also, John's been doing a lot of work behind the scenes, talking to manufacturers on both sides of this equation. Uh, and we will, we're going to have a bit of a, a, a sports car second hour, to be honest, because uh, we've also got the preview of... Lime Rock Park 
and the GT Extravaganza for the Northeast Grand Prix in the second hour on Midweek Motorsport Series 16, episode 28. We'll stay with the news. Shea, stay with us, please, because I've got some sports car news that I'd like you to go through uh, with me, if you don't mind. But we're going to do a little bit. We've got Nick with us. He is our correspondent for the top-rated open wheel. So, therefore, we have news from F1. Hooray! Oh, I can't move. There's 140,000 of me at Silverstone. Well, yes. I've got to tell you, it was very odd being shoulder to shoulder with people who weren't wearing masks at Goodwood Festival of Speed at the weekend. I, I, it was I had that, very, very I had that the football the week before. Very, 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 very odd. Uh, we'll have a preview of Silverstone and the sprint, which is what we've got to call it. Not the sprint race, not sprint qualifying. Uh, there has been an edict that's gone out. It's called the, the sprint. sprint. And apparently you have to say it like that when you do it. Um, but we have got some... F- <laughs> before. In a world. Um, we, uh, we have got some Formula 1 news before that. Uh, and it's two more years. Three more years. Three more years? Mm-hmm. Okay. Theoretically, with a review every year to see if it's worth it or uh, not. And what we're talking about here? We're talking about uh, Salva not being Salva, being named Alfa Romeo. But actually, no, because in 2024, they will change their name to Alpha Change. Do you see this? Alpha changed their name in 2024. To? Stellantis. To Alpha Iromeo. Genuinely. I read that, and I wanted to be sick. Surely it should be. If if it was you that did that, you would have said it should be, Eh, Alfa Romeo. Yeah, no, no, but basically, apparently, even though by then all cars will be getting greener and more hybrid-y, um, you have to actually kind of stress it. I'll put the word E actually in the title of the manufacturer. Mm. So Great. this is the news that the sponsorship deal for Sauber's Formula One entry by Alfa Romeo, um, Milan's finest, um, will continue uh, to uh, will continue beyond the end of it is. And, and apparently, there's going to be a road car connection here. Well. No, they, they, Sauber said, oh, yes, we can help with some sort of road car development. We kind of sit there going, realistically, the bits they need the help with are the bits you're not making, which is the engine, the hybridization. That's what Ferrari are doing. Mm. Um, you know, most m- most manufacturers are pretty good at aerodynamics now. I can't, can't remember. I think it was, was, it, was, it was Mercedes now that's got the lowest aerodynamics of any car ever um, and still looks like a car, not like the, the old Jenny mods when they first started doing this back in the late 80s. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I... I Obviously, Sauber do have a lot of spare time now with their wind tunnel because they're only allowed to do a certain amount of time, and they have a lot of spare time. Yeah, on their be, multi- no, hang on, but they're going to be doing all the BOP work for the WEC LMDH. Well, there we are. In a few they're months' time, very, aren't they? Uh, right, Sauber have no time in their air tunnel, in their wind tunnel. Um, it, obviously, it's very, very good news because it, it guarantees Sauber's future. Um, they've kind of, you know, limped along from you know near bankruptcy to near bankruptcy. What certainly since BMW pulled out. So when was that? 2009-10 um, you know they, they have a little issue with competitiveness at the moment obviously we've got a reset coming next year so who knows on the whole major resets have winners and losers but do tend to split the grid up so there's no reason to suspect they'll be any better or any worse than any particular other midfield team so we'll have to see what hits the ground and you know the big of the big conversation straight away becomes uh, who's going to drive the car um, they can't can and Tony Giovinazzi currently in the seats and Raikkonen, obviously, in the twilight of his career, not for any not for any other reason than he's very old, for 
a racing driver, still mm. very young compared to me. And Giovinazzi, you know, has got better, but is he better enough to go and get a fourth year? And, and then there's a whole link-in system that obviously they have a seat, theoretically, historically, a seat being bought, owned by Ferrari for one of their seats, obviously. But who knows? But that, that's obviously gives a chance for the team to have, make some, some long-term planning and gives a chance for the speculators going to drive for the next year. Does the fact that Alpha Fiat uh, is now part of Stellantis, which is mm. also PSA uh, and, you know, everything else. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, Opel, uh, Volkswagen and Uncle Tom Cobbley and all. Not Does, Volkswagen. Uh, Vauxhall, excuse me, is what I should have said. Um, does that, do you think, have any input to where the drivers might come from? Because clearly Alpine is also part of that same group. No, it isn't. What's part of, oh, no, it's part of Renault. Sorry, you're absolutely Herta right. Herta is part of that group. They've got, they're doing some big spending with racing drivers quite soon. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they've got two big, they have two racing programs, one one in-house, Um in Persia and one effectively uh, badge engineered, but I'm sure there might be some sort of, uh, uh, I'm sure there might be a little crossover and, and it's obviously quite useful um, if Stellantis have got some investment in in uh, Sauber to, to, to borrow wind tunnels and that sort of thing. But um, I don't know. I think it's, uh, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, really? I mean, uh, will that push come from there or will it continue to come from Ferrari, the engine supplier? Hard to tell. It's interesting. Obviously, Alfa Romeo, who haven't, set the world alight with their sales, even though I can personally vouch for the fact their cars are very good, their Mega. sales aren't, mm. um, feel it's worth the investment. Because obviously the other question is, you know, the, the Stellantis group can obviously do that, you know, at, good example there, the Alpine, John. Renault decided they wanted Alpine to be the brand on their F1 car. Well, there's nothing to stop Stellantis saying, well, it's Alfa Romeo Tuesday, and then we'll it'll be Maserati, they're, they're electric only, aren't they now? Mm. Uh, or we might make it Persia, or we might make it, yeah, they haven't got to have, have that particular, might be like Lancia, that'd be even better. Um, Lancia, you know, Lancia F1. <gasps> no. Lancia ever, ever going to come back? Which unfortunately isn't going to happen. They'll come back into rallying, I'm sure. But anyway, um, yeah, it, it, there is options, and you it'd be interesting to see whether how they leverage it because um, I think it, I think it did work. I think the first couple of years worked, but as we know, there's a there's a law of diminishing mm. returns in these things if you don't actually re-activate um, them. And I think they've been, it's been a little bit quiet on that whole front for the last year or so. Uh... George says no. Helmet says interested. Oh yeah, well yes. It sounds, it sounds like the world's worst Twitter conversation. Uh, mm. Twitter, yeah. Oh, I mean, oh, oh yes, maybe. Um, yes. Yeah, so George Russell has said there's going to be no announcement regarding his future at the British Grand Prix. Everyone felt that if he was going to get Mercedes drive, it'd be a great time for to announce it. Obviously, it wouldn't be a great time to announce it because it would mean that Valtteri Bottas, we know he hadn't got the uh, Mercedes drive, and therefore might be grumpy for a lot longer. So I'm sure there's some stringy along going on. Um, and as soon as he said he didn't know what he was doing, uh, Helmut Marco turned up and decided that, be, that uh, Red Bull would be very, very interested in George if he didn't get the drive of Mercedes. So effectively just stirring the pot, really. Uh, you know, they've got no intention of signing George Russell regardless, and George Russell has no intention of going there. But it does help just to you know, put a little bit of an elbow in, because never, never one to, to shirk from chance for a bit of a, a, bit of a uh, uh, hot throttling really i suppose i um, was wondering where the heck you were going with yeah, that to be honest. back out that one heavily uh but then, then in another word he actually said, said, said something nice about pierre gassi the first time in a year and a half so yeah. helmet did so, yes yeah helmet so i'm kind of thinking you know obviously helmet is absolutely you know 
that something crazy. So it's just it's interesting what he's feeling today. It's great. That's I mean, poo, Chris, is he? That's exactly what he is, yes. Mm. Um, in, 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 in sometimes the nicest possible ways, in others, not the nicest. Remember, he was the man who wanted the COVID party, so we have to leave that one. And, that's not, and, that, and you don't vote for the COVID party, you go to the COVID party, by the way. <laughs> Uh, Nick Dearman will be back in the second hour with a preview of the British Grand Prix at Silverstone, which includes, of course, for the first time, a slightly changed schedule to incorporate the sprint. Uh, Stay around, stay around. Want to do a bit of sports car news here, starting at Sheer Adam with the WEC, which is at Monza uh, this weekend. It was ELMS last weekend. Come to that in a moment. Uh, We've got to couple of super subs coming in. Uh, <laughs> first of all, Jop van Oetert sadly um, tested positive for COVID. Their car couldn't run last weekend in mm. ELMS and he can't run this weekend, but he's been replaced. By Nick de Vries. So if you're going to replace a driver from the Netherlands with a driver from the Netherlands, why not pick one who's pretty dandy in LMP2 machinery and uh, Nick who already has a ride for the 24 hours of Le Mans as does Yub so he will be back um, it's a good warm-up for Nick as he's been overdoing uh, Formula E has he not mm. yeah exactly exactly so and it's it's a good stand-in uh, indeed uh, Nicky team's back in GTE am for yeah. Le Mans. So we've got a few Le Mans stories as well. And Le Mans only, you know, a month away now. Let's not yeah. forget Oof. this weekend is the final warm-up event. So Nicky team back in GTE um, uh, because Augusto Farfus can't drive for Aston Martin. Because he is doing an electric race. So staying within that theme, uh, he has a full season with the pure ETCR championship. Farfus not able to complete the season in the WEC with uh, Paul Dallalano and Marcus Gomez, who he's been driving with. So they've picked a Danish driver to fill in, a Nikki team, a very good super sub. The reigning WEC GT drivers world champion from last year, it was looking like both Nikki and his teammate from last year, Marcus Sorensen, were going to be out of rides, but Nikki driving with the 98 GTE Amp car and marco having been announced as one of two additional drivers to the number 20 high class racing lmp2 machinery we already knew that dennis anderson was in that car and again danish lineup they're sticking with danish marco Sorensen, and then very not danish ricky taylor has been drafted in as well Start to look good lamont this year uh stay with yeah. that uh, another driver that we've spoken about maxwell root yeah. has got a lamont drive well, he's got to drive this weekend. Oh, I sorry. don't know if... Yes. Yeah. Um, the team that he's driving with this weekend is Team Project One over at Monza. Max Root is going to be sharing the car with Dennis Olsen and Anders Buchart. But I believe it is still Axel Jeffries, the Zimbabwe driver, who's based out of the UAE, who's going to be the third driver in that car for the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Root did run at Le Mans last year, so this is a perfect audition. Yeah. There are plenty of cars that have not declared their full lineups yet, so this is a good opportunity for Max. And with things changing all the time in terms of entry requirements and COVID protocols, there isn't actually... A- a published COVID protocol uh, yet for the Le Mans 24 hours for spectators, for journalists, mm. or for the teams as yet. We're still waiting for that from the ACO, and I'm led to believe that that is because they're still waiting to hear what the French government will decide 
uh, as to wow. entry requirements. So we'll keep you up to date with that. We're going to try next week. Next week, we're going to try and do a bit of a roundup of what we know about how to get to Le Mans, who can get to Le Mans, whether you can get to Le Mans. The good news is mm. Haggerty Radio Le Mans on the air from Test Day Sunday, the weekend before the race, and we'll have every Le Mans 24-hour session live on Haggerty Radio Le Mans, which takes over RS1 for that week. Special programmes on Monday and Tuesday, including our previews, uh, and we've got some fantastic feature programmes lined up for you every single track session on Haggerty Radio Le Mans RS1 from Sunday from Test Day all the way through till beyond the chequered flag on uh, Sunday afternoon the following weekend and Le Mans starts later as well uh, this year going back uh, to a more traditional start time to fit in extra support races on Saturday morning. I know there's uh, quite a lot of people asking about that because not everything is going to be televised but as last year we are guaranteeing you uh, potentially exclusive coverage of some of the early sessions that won't be aired anywhere else before we leave uh, sports cars and uh, Le Mans 24 hours and WEC uh, another driver who we've spoken about in the past year uh, Scott Andrews he was announced as making his Le Mans debut and it is a very good car. Uh, the car guy and Kessel Racing Ferrari, number 57, Takeshi Kimura and Mikkel Jensen in that car alongside Scott Andrews. So that's going to be a very fun lineup as well in GTE AM. Uh, yes, very, very impressive. Very impressive. ELMS at the weekend. The, uh, uh, the French team Panis Racing finally, after five years of trying... They took their first ever ELMS victory in uh, in some style uh, at the end of what was a dramatic four hours of Monza. If you didn't listen in, we were just listening to the end of it there before we came on the air with uh, Gigi and Johnny Palmer. Uh, Will Stevens, it was, who brought the Orica Gibson number 65 home for Panis. Just five seconds ahead of Tom Gamble, who came second for the United Autosports number 22, Gillian uh, Canal and James Allen uh, joining uh, Will on the top step of the podium. John Falbrui Andrade and Roberto Mary uh, won the LMP2 Pro-Am category, sixth overall. They started 14th uh, in the 25G drive car and, uh, as I said, won the LMP2 category. All sorts of incident and accident going on there. Uh, by the way, I should say I, I missed out the third place there and that was uh, the 82 of Jota that were third in the overall standings in uh, P3. It was DKR Engineering that won in their Duquesne DO8, the number 19 car. And in GTE, it was Spirit of Race in a very emotional victory uh, for Alessandro Greedy, David Perel uh, and Duncan Cameron. Uh, Alessandro having to sub in for Matt Griffin, who sadly had to go back to Ireland because his dad died before the race weekend. Matt and the family, we send you our great condolences uh, and hope that you get through the next few days. You're certainly all in our thoughts at the moment and an awful thing to happen when you're away from home and absolutely the right thing to do to go back to the family. Uh, Matt and the Griffin family, um, best wishes 
to you. So that's a bit of sports car news. We'll have more coming up in the second hour of the programme as Shea will be talking um, about the Lime Rock Park IMSA GT extravaganza. But now, well, actually staying on sports cars, but going to celluloid as well. Anybody of a certain age persuasion, and particularly from the UK, will recognise that as the film uh, short music from the BBC uh, that went on for a very, very long time. And we're staying with sports cars here because today uh, is the release date of a documentary movie that charts an incredible up and down, in and out season for Rebel Rock Racing in the Michelin Pilot Challenge uh, series over in IMSA. And, well, it's a, a movie that takes a look at a championship season, but without necessarily focusing on statistics, but looking more at the emotions and the feelings and potentially even the meaning of what was going on. Why do we race? That's the question that this documentary is trying to answer. Uh, Earlier on this week, I spoke to Robin Liddell, who's the team manager and one of the driving forces behind Rebel Rock Racing in their Camaro uh, GT4 race car. car. But first of all, uh, to the independent movie producer and director, uh, Adrian Bonvento. And my first question to him was, how did the project get started? You know, I, I approached uh, a few different teams and long story short, uh, I had known Robin since the Stevenson days and we worked together on some previous short films. So him and I had a good relationship. I approached him. He introduced me to Frank DePew uh, and Frank DePew was was really on board and, and great in terms of offering to support the film and, and giving me full access and really complete creative control, which is which is pretty rare. For us to do this, it was a relationship based on trust to an extent because you know, as, as Adrian's pointed out, we'd done, he had done some short films that he'd done for Stevenson, both with the Audi and the Camaro program in 2016-17. So he'd done some short movies around that, sort of three, four, five minutes. You know, Frank bought into it from the beginning. So when I showed Frank, I was aware of what Adrian was trying to do. And it was actually at the Roar in 2019 that we discussed this. So he approached me or we had a chat about it and I thought this would be a great idea for us. I thought it would be one, a great way of capturing and and preserving our season for posterity, if you like, more than anything else or as much as anything else. But also it would represent potentially a great opportunity for the team commercially because if the film's successful, clearly it would have some kickback in that regard. And also because I liked Adrian's work and I knew he was talented and I liked what his style and what he could do, it didn't take me very long to convince Frank that this would be a great, good idea. So all I really had to do was show Frank some of the shorter movies and say, look, watch this. Tell me what you think of it. 
And then we'll have a conversation about this guy and what he can do and what he wants to do. So as soon as Frank had watched him, he went, yeah, I like his style. I mean, Frank's, you know, he's got a creative eye for things to an extent also, and he liked the style. And once he'd watched it, he said, yeah, absolutely interested. And we talked to Adrian and, and um, you know, Frank agreed that he would help support it as best he could. Um, and that we would give him one of his key things was that he wanted access to everything. And so we gave him that. Of course, that, you know, provided elements throughout the film, not just at the beginning of the year, but it provided elements throughout the year. But from my own personal point of view, it's very difficult to see others, to see yourself as others see you. And that's made it difficult to watch it and elements of it. But at the same time, like I say, I trusted Adrian. And the fact that the season started off a bit shaky, in reality, actually just created the story for itself. We didn't have to seek a, a plot or a story. Yeah. The story was then, the scene was then set for the story that the film cre uh, told, which was obviously a very shaky start. And then ultimately, as you know, we went on to win a couple of races that year and have some success. Do you think your previous experience in and around particularly IMSA races allowed you to have that that spatial awareness of where you had to be at any one time? You had to effectively read the race as it as it applied to the Rebel Rock Racing Camaro. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think it has. I mean, not only the familiarity with the IMSA paddock, how they operate, you know, because pit lane is pretty chaotic and you, I, you have to kind of always have your head in a swivel. So I, I always sort of knew what was going on and I was staying out of people's ways, you know, because I was when they were doing pit stops, I was right up there, almost like I was a member of the crew and I had to knock it in their way because obviously everybody's here first and foremost to race. And that was one of the challenges was how do I tell a compelling film and get the shots I really want to get without affecting the race at all in any way? But it's very much a first-person movie that takes you right inside the team. And was that deliberate and, and conceived right at the beginning? It was, yeah. And and because uh, a lot of, like I said, a lot of my inspiration from this film had come from the feelings I've had, the emotions I've had growing up as a kid going to the racetracks. And I really wanted to try and convey that. Uh, and, and, you know... I have a little bit of my own style when it comes to shooting as well. So yeah, I, re I really made a decision to say, I just want to do this completely myself. Um, and, es and especially when it came to the in-car cameras, you know, broadcast does a great job of covering the race. Um, and, and that's amazing from what they do from their perspective, from a cinema perspective, you know, I wanted different angles. I wanted higher yeah. quality audio. I wanted the entirety of the thing at a higher resolution, which isn't easy to do for broadcast. So that was a conscious decision. Uh, and I really, having actually been lucky enough in my life to be in the passenger seat of a two-seated race car on the track, knowing how that feels, how intense it is, I wanted to try and convey those those feelings, those emotions, those forces with cameras uh, during the race. The pictures really breathe here, Adrian, as well. That That's the thing that I noticed. Yeah, no, I, I wanted, and my inspiration, a lot of my stuff has come from cinema rather than traditional documentary filmmaking. And obviously it's impossible to, to actually create cinema at a race because you don't have multiple takes. You do the best you can. Nobody's staging anything. It's all what you can capture. Um, but, you know, I, I wanted it to feel more like a proper film and I, I didn't want anybody to be taken out of the action at any moment. So the challenge was how do we convey what's going on to those who don't really understand the sport completely without taking you completely out of the moment and giving you a, you know, a racing one-on-one breakdown. Clearly, what he's tried to do is, is, is portray the feelings that are around going racing. And, and his thing, his big question is why you go racing? Yeah. Well, I think 
I mean, I've found it personally actually very difficult to communicate some of this with him. Um, and he has been sort of throughout the time we've worked together on this, he's sort of tried to give me the confidence that actually what the material I'm giving him is what he wants. But to me, it's like it doesn't either it doesn't come across so well or it doesn't maybe come easily. So there were times and occasions where he would say to me, oh, I want to do some voiceover with you back at the hotel. And I'm just like, oh, I really don't want to do this this weekend. Like, I just can't get my head in that space. It's been tough for all of us, I think, to contribute in our own little way. And, you know, there were times, like I say, when he was asking me stuff or doing these voiceover interviews, as it were, and I really struggled. And, and he made me dig deep at times to come out with things that meant something to me at some level that I could try and share. What did you get out of rookie season, the year you spent with Rebel Rock Racing in the Urban Greek Camaro, that surprised you the most? And you said, right, well, that has, that, as I'm, as I'm doing my plan, that on the storyboard, that's in. That's got to go in because I never thought I'd get that. To me, it's fairly obvious, but I mean, that, that amazing race in, in the rain in Road America, which starts and ends the film in a way, uh, that, I mean, it, you know, like Robin said, the story did fortunately almost write itself. I mean, coming from a, a very low low to a near miss at Watkins Glen to a win at CTMP and then a bit of a low at Lime Rock when there were higher expectations and then back up, you know, ecstatic at that, you know, crossing the line millimeters behind or in front of the McLaren. All the in-car that I captured during that race, four different camera angles, the audio and and the team radio, you know, all that stuff to work it together in, into more of a cinematic um, several laps. That was, I knew that had to be in the film. That was uh, Adrian Bonvento, the independent film director and producer. And Robin Liddell, you will have recognised his voice. Rookie season, the story of the 2019 Michelin Pilot Challenge season for Rebel Rock Racing in their Urban Grid Camaros, now available on the Vimeo platform uh, for rent. All the details, rookieseason.com. And we'll have a longer version of that interview playing on IMSA Radio over the weekend, Friday and Saturday for the GT Extravaganza from Lime Rock Park, and uh, there's there's quite a lot more behind that that we'll be talking about. But it's one of those things, Shea Adam, who is still with us. Um, it's a bit like when you, I mean, I, I like what Adrian said there. It isn't a movie. You can't reset things. You're not working on a storyboard. But what a season! Let's. I don't want to spoil the movie. I know you've seen the trailer. I've seen the whole movie. Um, but what a season for somebody, a filmmaker, to follow because it did have drama and it wasn't the best start. No, and to be perfectly honest, John, if they had followed the 2020 season, it wouldn't have been as good of a documentary. <laughs> uh, 2019 and that being the rookie season and, and the learning curve of the team, that's what made this movie so intriguing. And I, I have to say, I'm halfway through it right now. I had to pause it for the show. I didn't want to pause no. it. And it is filling me with all the emotion and yearning of getting back to the track. But the, the thing that struck me the most so far, watching the race at Mosport up at Canadian mm. Tire Motorsport Park, the raw emotion that you get from watching the in-car footage of Robin behind the wheel 
that in and of itself gives me goosebumps. So the rest of it, I, I can't even imagine what's in store when they get to the Road America race. Wait till you see the onboard of the second to last restart, which we <laughs> didn't see. And, you know, Robin was, what, 14th, 15th at that yeah. point. I was literally holding my breath. Extraordinary <laughs> stuff from, and, and I knew what happened, you know, but yeah. we didn't see it because we were watching so many other things. Uh, so uh, Adrian Bonvento and the rest of the team, uh, chapeau, and that is on Vimeo uh, for rent right now. If you want more details, uh, you can go to rookieseason.com. Uh, just to prove we're live, by the way, there is some football, Scottish League Cup, nil-nil, 4-1. And nil one at, at half time. Some Champion League uh, qualifiers uh, as well. Uh, we'll do some tweets in a moment, but first of all, here's what's on tomorrow night, nine o'clock on the grid with Shebex, Krilsey, and the rest of the team. Uh, news breaking journalist Bruce Newton joins the team to go through the behind the scenes. Uh, stories of the supercar paddock. Trust me, there's plenty going on there uh, at the moment. Bruce is uh, a, a, a very well-known member of the supercar media and uh, is part of the Hall of Fame, been around the paddock for years, certainly has his finger, in fact, he has both hands on the pulse of what's going on. So no one better to help Krilsey, Shebex and the rest of the team get the layer of the land for the series as it currently stands they'll be talking about the current calendar shuffle what's ahead for the rest of 2021 where gen 3 supercar is uh, at at the moment uh, and the challenges the season still faces there plus bruce will be giving his insight into the sales process as the sport searches for new owners as we reported and so did uh, krilsey and the boys last week uh, and then they'll have a review of what was a dominant red Ball uh, weekend uh, at Townsville, and of course it's Townsville again, 2.0 this weekend, all on the grid with uh, Tony Shebecki and Creelsey and the rest of the team uh, and their special guest tomorrow night at 9 o'clock on RS1, news of uh, Simcast in the second half of tonight's program let's take a look at some of your tweets with a reminder that just after nine o'clock we will be welcoming john de geese to midweek motorsport the founder uh, and uh, managing editor of sports car 365 as we look at convergence we have more details on the technicalities of that and plenty of news coming out ahead of wec at monza uh, as well dave alcock Listening to Nick Damon earlier on, how can Alfa Romeo think of changing their name? It carries so many memories. It has such history in Formula One, in sports car racing and the road cars. Who can forget the road going SZ or the wild DTM machinery? That would be a huge loss for the brand. Even a small change to their their name there. A lot of you submitting questions for John DeGeese at... Uh, 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 at Specutainment, use the hashtag RSLConverge. Um, we'll get John to answer some of those uh, later on. A few people saying who in their right mind would walk away from Alfa Romeo's history uh, and their name. And also, one or two, thank you. Says, sounds like I'm working from home all of Le Mans week. Thanks for Hag- to Haggerty for getting behind the team uh, as well. Kevin Payne, holidays already locked and loaded. There'll be a mid-Wednesday motorsport. I think we'll probably run that at mid- midday, uh, Kevin, 
on Wednesday. We're working on the schedule now, and there might be a little way of squeezing that into the schedule before the first of the evening practices from Le Mans on Wednesday, which starts at 8 o'clock. So we'll do a midday motorsport, whether that's midday French time or midday UK, TBA, but keep an eye on radio-show.co.uk. We'll have the schedule uh, and we'll be adding to it as we go on uh, as well. Hello to Serafina, who's just had a long overdue catch-up with a friend tuning in now. Uh, and Brody says, uh, I'm going to do a bit of planning next month and arrange the dates uh, about where we are, uh, when we are flying out to Seabring. Just coming up to a quarter to nine. Shea Adam uh, is with us. Uh, it is Lime Rock Park at the weekend. The Bull Ring, we'll talk about that in the second hour of the programme. But one thing I do want to say, Shea, great to see the GT extravaganza back with Mission Pilot Challenge and, of course, the WeatherTech Sports Car Championship just with their GT classes. And that's been a big success down through the years. Oh, it has been. And, and the schedule is quite fun, too, because it's basically just bouncing back and forth between the two series. Practice one, practice one, practice two, practice two, qualifying, qualifying. It's a nice uh, rhythm that gets going. And I know in the ALMS days, they used to have um, three support series running with the main series. It's a lot nicer when it's just the two of them out there. And the pit lane, even the map, it's pretty simplistic when it works like that. So there's no real excuses for anyone to be upset about not having enough track time or not having enough time between track time because you understand that however much time you have off is however much time they have off as well. And we have seen particularly in the pilot challenge in the past, the TCR cars are as quick, if not quicker than the majority and sometimes even all in qualifying of the GT forecast in that first sector of the lap. It's it's going to be a barnstormer. It really is. It's going to be fun. I'm really looking forward. We've got a super strong TCR field as well this weekend. And if you think back to performances like uh, Kenton Cook and Tom McGorman a few years ago, and of course, Michael Lewis putting the car pretty much on overall pole in the uh, Hyundai uh when was that? Two years ago now, I guess. Um, there have been some really strong qualifying performances, but then it does make things a bit more complicated for the start of the race. I'm hoping that they still do the split start. I'm waiting for that announcement to come out in the driver's briefing notes, uh, which we should be getting probably tomorrow. But if they do the split start, it's going to make it a lot cleaner for the backfield GS cars and the front running TCRs at Lime Rock. Uh, it's something that we haven't seen there before. Uh, yeah. Good stuff. Uh, Moni, hello, listening at lunch break. Can you resubmit your question um, with hashtag RSL Converge that you've just sent into at Spectatainment, just so I get it on the other screen for when John comes on in about 15 minutes? That would uh, be mega. Um, A lot of people getting themselves ready this evening uh, for British Grand Prix. Seems like a lot of you are going. Hello to Electronamic Vintage. He says, I'm an uh, electric car and an alpha owner. Adding ease? No. No, no, no. Extra ease <laughs> to my Alfa Romeo. Not, not required on voyage, uh, I think. Yes, abs- absolutely agree with you there. Uh, you're listening to Midweek Motorsports Series 16, Episode 28. Now, 
Following our show tonight at 10 o'clock, we have a special show. Nick Tandy in conversation with me from last week when I popped over to the workshop of Joe Tandy Racing to celebrate a couple of really important milestones. They had just clocked up their 100th race victory and they were celebrating 15 years, 15 years in existence. A lot of good stories in that and the history behind JTR, Joe Tandy Racing, coming up 10 o'clock this evening as a special extra show following Midweek Motorsport here on RSL1. Thank you uh, to Nick for hosting us uh, for that. There was a bit of chat of Corvette and other things as well, as you might understand. Uh, Tandy will be at uh, Lime Rock Park in a Corvette for the first time. And that's going to be a lot of fun. 50-second laps. They're going to get dizzy. Uh, more from Lime Rock <laughs> Park and the entry list. I'm sure there'll be a bit of BOP talk as well uh, before uh, we close tonight. That's in the second hour of tonight's programme. Keep your questions coming in, please. Uh, uh, hashtag RSL Converge. We've got John DeGeese coming up as we discuss the technicalities behind getting WEC cars running in IMSA and IMSA cars running in the WEC. It is going to happen. Uh, and th- there are some sensible, sensible technical uh, bits and pieces that are already laid out. And we'll be talking about them uh, in the second hour of tonight's programme. Just scanning through your tweets. Okay, Uh, let's move on to a little bit of sad news. Uh, You'll remember last week, just before we came on the air, uh, finally the confirmation of the death of former Formula One driver uh, Carlos Reutemann was confirmed by his daughter. We had a quick chat about him at the start of the show, but uh, I thought it was only right that we should speak to somebody who knew him and knew him very well. So earlier on this week, got Andrew Marriott on the line and first asked him where he met the driver they called Lola. Well, I first met him in 1968 at the uh, Temperada series. I managed to persuade the the owner of Motoring News to let me go for a month to Argentina to this new Formula 2 series. A lot of the Formula 1 drivers were were taking part, and I found out that Autosport weren't sending anybody, and that persuaded uh, the famous Mr. T, the proprietor, to let me go to this race series. And the Automobile Club of Argentina... Um, added four or five drivers that they funded to take part in this series, local drivers. And, of course, they were going to be racing against the likes of Jochen Rint, Piers, Courage, Jackie Oliver, and uh, lots of two Ferraris with, with Brambilla and Diadamich, which was the class of the field, actually. But anyway, um, the Argentine uh, Association really were putting all their weight behind a guy called Juan Manuel Bordieu who was, uh, I'll use the word, but he was a bastard son of of Fangio. Um, But it turned out he wasn't the hot shoe because the hot shoe was Carlos Reutemann, who had been racing in single seaters and touring cars in Argentina for three or four years. Anyway, they put him in a techno, which wasn't the car to have, certainly in those four races. But uh, he immediately showed his speed. And uh, by the end of the series, 
Um, he'd uh, raised a lot of eyebrows, and in fact, they switched him into a Brabham. I think even Frank Williams ran it, so he was in a better car at the end of the series. So I met him there and chatted to him because you know he was of of, um, of German and Italian descent and and spoke very good English, and um, was a, was a sort of friendly guy. I mean, a bit of an enigma, and we'll go into that in a minute. But anyway, I got to know him there, and so. The Automobile Club of Argentina were buoyed by his success at the end of that 68 season. So they then funded him for a full season in uh, Formula 2 in Abrabham. And then he had my details, so we got in touch. I can't quite remember this, John, but I think I might have even helped him find a flat in London. He came over with his, his lovely wife, Mimicha, was also you know, very friendly. And so... Um, you know, I got to know him that way, went out to restaurants with him and uh, obviously was reporting his races and so on. So, um, yeah, and, uh, I was I was there reporting most of his career. But um, uh, Andre, you said he was a bit of an enigma. What did what do you mean by that? Well, he. I mean, the, the big situation, of course, was the end when he lost the world championship at Las Vegas of the famous race in 1980. Went into that race in Las Vegas with a one-point lead in the championship. Um, all he had to do was beat PK. He didn't have to win the race or anything. And somehow he just lost it. Um, he, it, it no one really knows. And he never explained it. But you know, in the end, I think he finished eighth. And he was on the pole position, you see. So it wasn't as if he, he got car problems beforehand or anything and I think I think it's just the pressure of it all the pressure of, of doing it for Argentina and so on I think got to it but um, you know in a way he was the most sublime driver you know on his on the occasion and uh, of all those occasions the one I remember the most was when of course he put it on his the pole for his first ever world championship Formula One race at his home race in Argentina, start of the season, he was in a Brabham, not not the current Brabham, but an older BT34, the one they used to call the Lobster Claw. And um, the, there was a huge crowd there, even for qualifying. He'd gone well in practice. Well, it was all practice, but the, the final session was the one that counted. And, um, of course, back then, John, you'll, you'll remember, or just about remember, that um, there was no timing and scoring to, to find out who was going fastest. We asked the various timekeepers, like, like Helen Stewart and so on, uh, who were on, on the pit wall and looked at the, looked at the pit boards. But the commentator was going absolutely wild, and he was, um, he was there as well. But I actually had a stopwatch in my hand, an old TikTok stopwatch. So I timed him on on one of the very last laps he did, and it looks as if he was on pole position. And the crowd was just going mad. And then, of course, after about 15 minutes, when the timekeepers had gone through all their maths, they, just, they said, Carlos Reuter was on the pole. Well, you can imagine the whole place erupted. <laughs> and it was just one of the most, uh, it was a, free, a really free wild occasion, or, or um, tainted a little by, by the terrible smell that came off the municipal rubbish dump, which was just about a mile down from the autodrome. Um, but what an occasion that was. And that was, see, that was Reutemann's sublime best. I've looked through his career results and his best three career results in the championship were three third positions. One in 75 for Martini Racing, one for Ferrari in uh, in 77 and uh, 1980 for, for Williams. Third was the, was the best he got in his Formula One championship yeah. season but, career. But that last one, he should have won, you see. Yeah. And he should have won it. That, that's the thing. I mean, he won 12 Grand Prix in his uh, career and he won big races like Monaco. He, 
he won the British Grand Prix. And just one other little aside, you know, he was often known as Lolle or El Lolle. And people don't really know what it meant. But it was, it was one of those funny South American things. He would grow up on a farm. And um, they had um, suckling pigs there, which ah. I presume went on the barbecue at some stage. And the, the word for a small suckling pig in, in Spanish is lechito. But he couldn't say lechito. He said lolle. So it was a family thing. So the lolle <laughs> stuck. Excellent. And that's why he was often known as lolle. Did he, he liked to do other stuff as well. And um, he, in 1980, he came third on the Argentinian rally in a 131 Fiat Mia Fiori Abarth. Uh, and in yeah. 1985, he, even more impressively for me, in the 205 Turbo 16, which was a monster of a car, yeah. back out on that Argentinian rally again and, and came on the podium again. And is one of only yeah. two... Uh, Formula One drivers to have been on a WRC podium. That was extraordinary, even even in those days, particularly in 85. Yeah, he got a stage fastest as well. I think he's one of only two Formula One drivers to have done that. Uh, yeah, but it was a strange, you know, one was right at the end of his, you know, still in his current career. But the, the Peugeot thing came out of the blue five years later. And he did quite a bit of sports car racing, John, you know. Uh, in, back in 1973, when Ferrari sometimes ran three of those glorious Ferrari PBs, you know, the flat 12 oh, um, cars. Oof. Yes, 312 PB. Um, he, when they ran three cars, they usually ran two, but when they ran three, he, he raced with Tim Schenken. And he didn't have any wins, but he had a couple of second places with Tim at Monza and, and Vallelonga. And he also raced for Alta Delta in 1974. And had a, he was second in the Nürburgring 1000K, for instance. So, you know, he, he liked, liked to drive different cars. And um, but then you know, I think his main focus was Formula One. But I mean, of all the racing drivers, I mean, it's a strange thing for I suppose a man to say. But he was absolutely beautiful looking, mm. and he didn't even realise it. That was the funny thing. So if I, mm. somebody says, "Who's the archetypal racing driver? Who would you say is the most best-looking racing driver ever?" I'd say Peter Revson and Carlos Reutemann. Yeah, when he did finish, he was adamant, Carlos Reutemann. Uh, Andrew, that he, he wanted to go into politics. Now, various yeah. sports personalities do that, and it's it's far more prevalent now than it, it would have been then. The Argentinian political situation was fluid, to say the least, but yeah. he, he rose to the governor of Santa Fe's position, uh, which he he held for for many years, and he, he genuinely genuinely seemed to want to make a difference. He's, he's, I never met the man, but I've read quite a lot about him in the last week or so, and he, and everyone yeah. says he genuinely seemed to want to make a difference. Yes, he did. He was um, in something called the Justilist Party, and Santa Fe is a big province. You know, this wasn't he wasn't a minor politician. He he was a big politician, um, but he never wanted to become. Uh, the, the president of Argentina, and there was a lot of pressure for him to do that. But obviously, Argentine politics have been mixed up for for many a year. And the most marvelous country, Argentina, you know, which has been ruined by politics, in in my view. But we won't get into that. But yes, he was he was um, he was a politician for many years, but never got involved in in motorsport politicians. You know, like people like Ari Vatanen had done. Um, it was very much for Argentina. I think he was a a, a very proud Argentine. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's sad to mourn his passing. As I say, a sublime, sublime driver, complex character. Um, but and I'll certainly miss him. I hadn't spoken to him for a few years. 
But um, I did speak to him on the phone well, four or five years ago. And then, of course, he was, he was in, in fine fettle. I was very, very friendly with the journalist Peter Windsor, who knew him better than, than I did. But at least I hold my hand up to so say I was the first person to spot him as far as British journalists are concerned. And, and I, I, I valued that friendship, too. Still to come on Midweek Motorsport. And is there any chance you could bring some dessert to the VO booth, please? Uh, yes, plenty still to come. Uh, we'll have Cher Adam back with her preview of Lime Rock Park at the weekend. Nick Dearman looks forward to the British Grand Prix and the sprint. That's what we've got to call it. It's not the sprint race, it's not sprint qualifying. It is the sprint. It's like changing the timetable to accommodate the sprint. And you have to say it like that. Uh, that's all coming in the second half of tonight's show. We'll kick it off with Convergence Chat, hashtag RSL Converge. And coming up to discuss that with us, John DeGeese from Sports Car 365 on Midweek Motorsports. Just after nine o'clock here in the UK, calling from Chicago. Uh, so what are you six behind us, John, at this uh, this time of the year? Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Good afternoon to you then, sir. And how are you? Good. How about yourself? Uh, very well, John. Thank you for asking. Uh, well, what a few days. What a week, 10 days Ooh. it's been uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, obviously, the doubleheader at ELMS and WEC at Monza. And we're right in, in the middle of that. We'll maybe get a chance to talk about that. But first of all, we're here to talk about convergence. We knew it was coming. Um, you and I were in the room at Daytona when it was announced which I never thought I'd see in my lifetime. It then kind of went quiet a bit. COVID sort of got in the way. And then World Motorsport Council, FIA, pop up and say it's definitely happening. We're changing the rules. And not only did it do that, but a few days later, we actually get a technical, if not a framework, certainly a blueprint to make this happen. It's all of a sudden back on and it's back on at a, well, it hasn't got away, but it's on at a pace, John. Absolutely. And I think blueprint is a really good word to characterize what we received from the ACO, FIA and IMSA on this convergence uh, agreement made. And it really centered on four different key areas, tires, acceleration profile, braking capability and aero. And um, what we know is one of the big sticking points between balancing a Lama hypercar and a Lama hyper. LMDH. We still don't know the name of the. You still don't know what H stands for in LMDH. I think it's hybrid, but if you ask the ACO, I think it's hypercar. But um, that's a different point. The the point being is that if what we saw is that if there's a big difficulty in balancing these two different platforms, largely because of the front axle hybrid regeneration system on the LMH cars, namely the Toyota, um, the Peugeot will be the same way, and we're expecting the 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 Ferrari to be that as well. So um, the technical minds of the ACO, the FIA, IMSA, all had to put their heads together and really come out with a solution that'll actually work on the racetrack and um, balance these two 
pretty unique, uniquely different platforms. I, I would often consider this a, a very similar situation to what we had in the early days of the WeatherTech Championship when mm. there was Daytona prototypes with LMP2s. Um, sure, you know, they're based off of a, 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 a carbon monocoque, you know, both our LMH and LMDH, but it's still, they're getting their power in significantly different ways. And um, there's been a lot of challenges in these last year and a half trying to come up with some kind of common consensus compromise uh, per se to get this right. You mentioned Peugeot there, and I'll come back to that because that was the other um, component of, of all of this excitement about what Andy Cotton from Race Car Engineering has, has told me I've got to start calling the global prototype class, which I actually really rather like because mm. I'm getting confused with all the different iterations. And if I'm getting confused, then what hope does anybody else uh, have, uh, to, to be honest? Lots of different cars with lots of different philosophies behind them, whether they are derivations of, of road cars, whether they're pure bespoke racing cars, um, and what that might mean. But you mentioned there, and I, and I think this is key for people to understand, John, we're not now talking something esoteric that's floating around in the atmosphere. We have these four cornerstones in, in, in that respect of performance that are going to be used to bring these cars in onto a level playing field. Does it mean that always that the lap times will be the same? It doesn't mean they'll make their lap times in exactly the same way. But what it does do is it allows the sanctioning bodies of the SEO for WEC and and ELMS and Asian Le Mans series and, and whatever else, and IMSA for the WeatherTech Sports Car Championship as it is at the moment. It allows them to compare like with like and just go through those four four cornerstones again for us yeah so we'd start off with the tires and that is an interesting one because the lmh the lama hypercar regulations have different tire sizes depending on the the hybrid configuration or if there is any hybrid at all uh, a non-hybrid car as in the glickenhaus is allowed 29 inch um, front tires and 34-inch rear tires, where on the all-wheel drive Toyota, it's 31-inch all around. So what has been done is instead of having a different variable added in for LMDH, the LMDH cars will adopt the rear-wheel drive profile similar to the Glickenhaus, basically treating it like a non-hybrid where all LMDH cars will be on a 2934 variant Michelin tires. And that's one less variable basically to balance out, you know, if we were to add a third different tire um, option, then that's a whole other thing to try to, to, to try to balance. So, and it's all Michelin, which takes another variable yes. out of it. Thank goodness. Yeah. Yeah. That's one good thing. Um, but it's still, you know, there was going to be a difference between the all-wheel drive and the rear-wheel drive, but I like how at least these bullet points have sort of been set up to sort of say these are the all-wheel drive cars, these are the rear-wheel drive cars, and LMDH falls under the rear-wheel drive profile because Correct. their spec hybrid system is on the rear axle, unlike the the option that LMH cars have to either put it on the front or the, or rear, the rear or go non-hybrid, as in the case of Glickenhaus. So that's number one. What's number two? Number two is acceleration profile. And basically what that means is the, the regenerated uh, energy that's recovered from the front wheels 
of the of the hybrid cars that choose to have it on the front axle and the front um, drivetrain. That's the Toyota, Peugeot, most likely Ferrari. We don't know exactly what they're doing just yet. But the key is here that previously the activation zone was 120 kilometers per hour. So the, the you can use the, the power at a speeds above that. Now it's going to be used as a BOP element. Yeah. So it can change from track to track right. or um, from platform to platform. So basically the ACO and FIA and IMSA can use that as a form of balance of performance. So we're not only just going to have weight, um, uh, engine capacity, uh, uh, fuel flow will also have acceleration profile for the all-wheel drive cars, for the LMH cars that have this tech technology in on on board. So, um, exactly. interesting thing is we've heard that they've actually been playing around with this at the recent Portimao race, WEC race with the Toyota. Um, we had heard that they were using that car was limited to 130 kilometer activation acceleration profile there where it wasn't written in the regulations that way. So it seems that the FIA already had this in mind for quite some time and already have some experience using it. Number three. Number three is braking capability. Ah, and that's th another now, factor. Now, now, this isn't as obvious as just saying, oh, yeah, well, you push your foot on the brakes and your friction brakes <laughs> slow you down because we've gone way, way, way beyond that now. And indeed, Glickenhaus have been allowed brake-by-wire, which they weren't sure they were going to get. So this is, this is crucial because we know from the old LMP1 hybrid days that the retardation events that Anthony Davidson told us about on our coverage years ago on the prototype was effectively giving a, a, a totally solid pedal all the way through a 12 or 24 hour race and was also infinitely variable in terms of being able to act like ABS without being ABS as per the regulations. So braking performance, exactly. this is this is crucial, isn't it? Yeah, this was basically the key element along with the acceleration profile that gave the LMH hybrids, front wheel drive hybrids, so much more of an advantage over any other. Got you platform so this needed to also be addressed and um the the key element here is that all-wheel drive cars um with the um, with the front differential cannot use the zero lock mechanism on coast so that allows that takes away some of the advantage there for for those those cars also there's this big equation um for for using the 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 differential on, on coast and, and, and between all-wheel drive and rear-wheel drive. It's wow. a bit over my head. I'm not, I'll be the first to raise my hand. I'm not an engineer, um, but it, it looks to be that they're basically trying to equalize the different, basically the advantage that LMH cars have by, by the front differential. Now, the fourth one is aero, correct? Yes, that's now, actually the most simple to understand, uh, I think. <laughs> remarkably, I think you're right, because only person I know in the world who sees air moving is Adrian Newey. Uh, I had a chat with him at the weekend <laughs> uh, about this, and we were talking, I was down at the Festival of Speed, and I was talking to Adrian about this, and, and he was explaining to me why what's been proposed is actually a pretty good idea. And what's been proposed is that the aero balance for anything anybody who competes in WEC or ACO regulations will happen in the Sauber wind tunnel. The aero balance for anybody who competes in IMSA competition will be at wind shear, isn't it? Um, and yes. 
And that is regardless of what type of car you've got. So there's a consistency here, John, that, that means you're not being treated. If, if you take an LMDH to ACO competition, you're not being treated any differently and you're not having different data taken from you than any of of the other competitors in that series. And exactly the same if, if Glickenhaus or Toyota were to bring their hypercars to IMSA. You are being asked to conform with what the individual series are doing with all of their competitors. Yeah, and this basically means there will be different BOPs for the two series, for the WEC right. and IMSA. And that's completely understandable because it, the the characteristics of the of the tracks in IMSA are significantly different than in WEC and vice versa. So this makes a lot of sense. I, I know this was a huge hiccup, a huge stumbling block initially um, in the discussions with the, the technical working group meetings of how which wind tunnel would be used. And it was really a, the initial discussions, as far as I understand, it was going to be either or. And ultimately, they decided on, well, let's just continue each using our own wind tunnels. But enforce that if those cars race in their series they have to be verified in that in that same wind tunnel which makes sense it's going to lead to more costs and and the cost per the manufacturer i would have to assume but that's just going to be the cost to play in the other series say if toyota wants to do the rolex 24 or glickenhaus take on petite lamar or um you know porsche obviously is committed to wec so they'll be doing both for sure so um that's the that's the way you look at it from that perspective there is an additional requirement for IMSA that each manufacturer yeah. is registered in the IMSA championship as a manufacturer. And, and that is, that's a financial commitment as much as it's anything else, John. Yes, um, that's been in place for a number of years, and I think we've talked about it on, on a, a lot of occasions. Um, it's a little sketchy on exactly what it means, but it's more or less a commercial agreement that you're forging with IMSA to offer marketing support and assistance in the WeatherTech Championship along with some sort of entry fee bundled in together. Um, There's been some figures floated around in what this costs, but it really depends on the size of the manufacturer. It's my understanding uh, an OEM uh, such as Glickenhaus, which is producing cars in the U.S. as far as we know, road-going cars, um, their cost to entry is probably going to be significantly less compared to a Toyota. But then you look at it where Toyota has an existing relationship with IMSA already with its GR Supra GT4 um, that was forged this year um, in the Michelin Pilot Challenge. So I'm with presuming... Lexus. Yeah, ex- exactly. Mm-hmm. So um, presuming Toyota wants to do the Rolex 24, they may not actually even have to make a further investment to do that. Yeah. But a Glickenhaus, for instance, will. A, a, a Peugeot would as, will, uh, would as well, although Peugeot has sort of set out already and said that they have no plans to contest any IMSA races at this time. Um, Ferrari's the other example I think we would probably be wondering. Um, they do have a current agreement, but again, that's for GT Daytona, so I'm not sure if there's if the numbers might change a little bit <laughs> if you go into the top class. You think? There might be a top-up yeah. fee, I think so. You mentioned Peugeot yeah. there, John. Uh, we, we saw the unveiling of uh, not not now just a rendering. It's a full-size show car. It's not a moving car. It's not a prototype. It's at Monza this week. But I'm told by people at Peugeot that that is very close indeed to what we're going to see. There was some excitement around that, some astonishment uh, around that. 
I said to Andrew Cotton on last week's show, I think the ACL will be very pleased with that because the styling cues from the Peugeot 508s, uh, particularly the sport-engineered cars that we have here in the UK, it's almost like they've lifted the front end of of those saloon cars. Um, this is exactly what LMH was meant to be, and it's a French brand. ACL must be delighted with that, John. Yeah, it, it's it's exactly the way that I thought what a hypercar would look like, yeah, and it's just too. like going just like just like going back to the early DPI days when Mazda unveiled their RT24P. That's exactly what mm. we thought what we envisioned a DPI to be. And um, the big surprise with the Peugeot, though, was no rear wing, and <laughs> um, I'm still trying to come to grips with that and see how that will work, but. Um, I think that just adds a whole nother element into this whole balance of performance that we're going to have between all these various different platforms. Um, but uh, yeah, a stunning piece of, of machinery. I'm sure there's going to be some changes to it as we see the, the real car um, roll out, I think, at the end of the year for, for its initial testing. But I'm still um, very impressed by the entire organization um, there at, this, at Stellantis Motorsport and all. Um, they've really put together and, and have really committed to this platform. Uh, you're listening to Midweek Motorsport. It's Series 16, Episode 28. On the line uh, from Sportscar 365 HQ in Chicago, it's uh, John DeGeese. We're talking convergence, which seems all of a sudden to me to be closer than ever before. Hashtag RSL Converge if you want to get in on this. Let's go through some of the points. Kevin Payne says, did I hear correctly? FIA, WEC and IMSA would have different BOP for LMH. Does that mean LMDH will be the same regardless of the series, and as a supplementary says, is there a name for the combine class? Surely it can't be worse than the whole hypercar nonsense. <laughs> I'm going to take that last bit. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to put that on John. I don't think they should call the top class hypercar when you've got a class within the class called hypercar. So global prototype, um, LMP1. It would, it, would be nice. it would be nice if there's a single name for both series but yeah. i'm afraid we may have different names <laughs> i i just i don't um because hypercar has is the name of the class in aco so i i don't see them changing it by year three no now the lama hypercar is a category of car under hypercar lmh so presumably you can have lmh and lmdh race in the hypercar class now what imps is going to call it i have no idea but it would be nice to have some common a common name across all platforms. We could we could have, if you look at the regs, by the time we take bespoke racing car with hybrid in, in mm. LMH, bespoke racing car without hybrid, uh, road car derived with hybrid, road car derived without hybrid, and LMDH, DPI 2.0, DPIH, whatever we're calling that, you could have five different regulations in the yeah. one category. Although they're not talking about splitting those up, they will run. Uh, certainly in ACO competition, under uh, the same auspices, and there will be one podium. So so what about the other question that, that Kevin said then? So where will the BOPs be different, John, as far as you're aware? Will it be different in both series? So LMDH might not have the same BOP when it runs in ACO as it does in, in IMSA, and, and LMH, the ACO version, will not have the same B- BOP when it's running in ACO competition as it runs in, in IMSA. So it, it, it could be different for both sides of the coin. It, it could be. We don't have clarification on that yet. But what I'm saying about BOP is not more about balancing the two platforms, but just BOP within each 
yeah. each platform in general. You know, like yeah. it's balancing the 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 Peugeot against the Toyota in an LMH or the the Acura versus the Audi in in LMDH. I I envision based on the, the, especially the wind tunnel verification tests and whatnot, they're not the ACO and ACO FIA and IMSA are not going to be working with the same entirely s stable set of, of data. They're going to be using their own data, I'm sure, yeah. conversing with each other as well. But as we see right now, GTE Pro has a totally different BOP than GTLM in IMSA. And I think that's a perfect example to go by that, you know, each series is probably going to adapt to their own regulations accordingly. And um, obviously there's going to be some kind of base BOP to help keep these two platforms close together. And I think those four key pillars we were just talking about, I think that's part of it, but um, yeah, I'm expecting the BOP to be different, yeah. um, but it's really no different than it is today. Just, no. just a different class. Well, yeah, particularly if you're an LMP2 runner and you're swapping and changing between, between the two. Uh, Vbin, the LM Hypercar says, uh, "What's going to be in your minds, guys, the most tricky aspect of teams trying to race in both IMSA and WEC?" I'm going to say first of all before John jumps in here because I'm going to do the easy one. Well, let's see if we can get the calendars organised first. Yeah. Of all, first of all, and that's just from a practical point of view. We're assuming that people are going to be travelling again, Vibin. Um, I, I, I think probably not so much the technical aspect and not even the BOP aspect. Um, it, it'll be the sporting regulations for me, John. We've seen so many teams that jump backwards and forwards from one series into another who get caught out because, oh, you're not allowed to touch the car when you're doing this. Oh, you've got to stop the engine when mm -hmm. you're, you're doing that. Yeah, I think there's going to be small little changes. We, we see that in LMP2 right now, even this year, with diff, like effectively three different specifications between ELMS, WEC, and IMSA. Good point. Um, United Autosports, I think, is the only team that's actually been going through all, diff, all three of them rotating throughout the year. And, and that's just different power levels, different electrical um, systems and, and series-specific items. WEC and ELMS is obviously much closer. I think the Lamar Aero kit's the only difference. But... <coughs> Sorry. Um, right there, but, yeah, I'm fine. Um, but the the situation is, I, I think, from a sporting side, there's always certainly changes with the, like you said, John, um, uh, refueling um, re restrictions there, um, uh, pit lane speed limiters, um, uh, reconnaissance laps, etc. Correct. But scheduling, I think, is going to be the big thing because totally right correct. now we have – DPI races right on the hinge of Lama. For instance, Detroit has been a mainstay on the WeatherTech Championship calendar for years and years. I, I asked Roger Penske this back during the Detroit weekend. You know, are you guys considering moving this date to potentially Labor Day weekend back to how it was in the ALMS days or to a different date um, in, in the summer? Because, you know, obviously it's not going to work together with IMSA and Lama when you have LMDH into the equation or LMH or all the top class prototypes mm. and Roger didn't really give me a, a clear cut answer. And I quite frankly, I think they're probably thinking about it, but <laughs> Indy IndyCar does probably take priority over anything like that. Correct. So um, that's one big concern of mine because what happens to that event? Does that become a GT only? Mm. Um, but then how does Corvette get to race there? If they're going over to Le Mans, would they use separate chassis? Um, and then will Cadillac Corvette be racing in IMSA by then? Well, 
I think they will be. I think they there looks like they're going to have a two-year commitment with their modified C8Rs in GTD Pro, but that's a different story. <laughs> um, it's yeah, there's a lot up uh, at, at, a lot lot to play for right now. But I, I think the biggest concern, if teams or manufacturers wanting to do both series, I think scheduling is the, is the huge one. We know for the most part the 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 the, the uh, lineup at least for the moment, of who's coming. Um, uh, there will be more. We know there's going to be more. Yeah. Uh, Multimatic have got the Volkswagen AG uh, contract. At the moment, we know that's Audi and Porsche. It seems as though Audi um, have been beaten into line by Porsche and will use the Porsche engine, which, depending mm-hmm. on who you talk to, might be uh, a new engine or a very old engine. Um, an old V8 engine. Audi, I know, want to run a small V6 instead, and they're still trying to do that. Um, up to, what, as many as 16 chassis for Multimatic for 2023. How will that split out, John? Yeah, so from what I, from my sources indicate that both Audi and and Porsche will be allocating up to two customer cars per series. So you already have the two works Audis in both series, and then the two works Porsches run by Penske Porsche Motorsport in both series. So that's eight cars right there. And then you add two two privateer Porsches in IMSA, two privateer Porsches in WEC, and then two privateer Audis in IMSA and two privateer Audis in WEC, and that's, that's how you get 16. So, John, um, just before you move on from that, you say works Audis. So do you believe then that there will be an Audi Sport team in LMDH and it won't just be Audi Sport customer racing supporting WRT and Phoenix and the, the other people who are in the frame for that? You think that like Porsche, there will be an Audi Sport works team, do you? I believe so. Yes, I I know that's not official yet, but no, no. based on what I've heard, it seems to go that way. It may not be like what it used to be with Yoast, you know, of of that level, but I think wow. somebody like WRT representing Audi in in Europe, for instance, I think that's a pretty foregone conclusion already. Right, right. Uh, but there will be customer cars straight off the bat for the VHE brands. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Right. Um, so that's their limitation, apparently. Haven't gotten this confirmed by anybody at Porsche or Audi, but this is what we understand is the case, that there will be up to four customer cars in each manufacturer uh, for 2023. Right. Now, there is the opportunity for other VAG brands. Lamborghini have been looking at this very closely. Bentley I think you and I have been told the same story that they're going to do mm-hmm. something else. They've got a different project that they don't want to talk about at the moment. Uh, and it won't be an LMDH. But Lamborghini, very much interested in that, particularly if LMDH is allowed into the Asian uh, Le Mans series. They see that as a growth area for them. But that's not going to be in 2023, is it? For, for Lamborghini, and yeah. For Lamborghini, no. So Lamborghini is 2024 at the earliest. Um, still no formal decision there. Um, I know the emphasis has been taken on IMSA, but don't be surprised to see some in WEC as well if they do get an approval. Yeah, BMW, uh, very much BMW North America driving this one, although the rather bizarre announcement with the 
um, the art car in the Opera House uh, came out of Europe. BMW, we believe, uh, palled up with Delara getting in there ahead of GM. Uh, Cadillac or Corvette, depending on who you talk about, it'll be one of the two uh, GM brands. Still waiting to find out which of... Uh, which of the chassis manufacturers they'll go to. I want to talk more about that chassis manufacturers. Ke- it should be Cadillac, Delara, but right. we're still waiting on an announcement on that. Right, okay. Um, BMW, customer cars from them, do you think? I get the feeling no, at least initially. Um, had a chat with Mike Crack, who is the mm. new BMW M Motorsport director, and he said they have a general philosophy at BMW where they don't race against their customers. Yes. And so since there is no other subclass or anything for that for LMDH right now, I get the sense that there won't be any cars, at least for the first year. Um, like you said, John, the focus is on IMSA, so maybe they could sell some customer cars for WEC teams in the future, but um, it seems that they don't want to stretch themselves too thin too early. What about GM then? Chip Ganassi have been... I mean, Chip was... He, he did 147 meetings at that Detroit weekend. He was, <laughs> he was in the Renaissance Centre more than he was in the paddock at Belle Isle. Um, he's got yeah. to... Be, they've got to be top of the list, haven't they? I think... Ganassi is at the top of the list, but we also could have a new team or a new team of sorts enter as well with Hendrick Motorsports. Um, There's been a lot of talk about that in the last few weeks on the possibility of Hendrick fielding a Cadillac full-time, potentially even er as early as next year with uh, with the DPI. Um, Perhaps some kind of further integration with Action Express or... Um, I had heard the rumors that they were potentially looking at buying out Action Express. Um, I mm. got that denied firmly by Hendrick, by a, a, rep- a team representative at Hendrick Motorsports. But um, we'll have to wait and see what happens with, with that. But I would expect the Cadillac contingent to at least be two different teams. I would say Ganassi and then either uh, Hendrick or Action Express or a combination of that two. And, and will that, again, will that be a fully funded works team? Because traditionally, Cadillac have worked at what I, you and I would say was a, a, customer, uh, a customer model for, their, yeah. for, their, for DPI racing. So the Ganassi effort this year is more or less a factory car. You don't right. see any sponsorship on it at all. And that's a clear sign that uh, it's fully funded by Cadillac. And it was actually done as a, a deal in conjunction with Ganassi's um, involvement in Extreme E with Hummer. And so it was kind of a, a package deal, one, a one-year contract for DPI. I'm expecting that to get extended if, if, if Ganassi continues with LMDH, which I would expect wow. them to do. But um, I think Cadillac is going to be stepping up with some more money. Whether it's a full-on factory effort, I, I, I don't know. But um, certainly it's not what the original plan was right. when they arrived in DPI. Acura stay with Orica, surely? Yeah, that's already, it's not been confirmed by Acura, but we know both are working together again on this. Um, it, it's it's already in the final design phases, and um, the two current teams that are with Acura Machinery, Meyer Shank Racing and Wayne Taylor Racing, are already contracted through the 2023 season. So right. that sort of gives you a firm idea of where things are headed already with that. Um, I, I, I want to, uh, Moni Elysium, um, Monica, hello, um, has asked a really good question uh, about 
WEC teams coming at the Rolex by 2023, and we can speculate as much as we want about that. I'll ask you that to finish, John, but I want to throw in something a little bit more of a curveball. Um, and it strikes me, and I, I know I think sometimes don't think in straight lines, and you've had plenty of conversations with me to know that that is true. Um, it, it strikes me that we are in a situation here with... LMDH, DPI 2.0, whatever the next gen is going to be called, of the IMSA version of this global prototype, that is absolutely 180 degrees from where we were when the first one came in. When DPI first arrived, LMP2 was an established formula with an established chassis with four manufacturers. And all the DPI IMSA manufacturers, let's call it like that, um, basically took an existing car, and worked it into what they needed to do for, for their DPI IMSA racer. The ACO have pushed back LMP2 and the new LMP2 chassis regulations. Now, to 2024, before we expect to see them, we have no regulations for LMP2. We don't even know what engine's going to be used or whether it'll be turbo or non-turbo even. Fundamentals like that. But right now, we have IMSA manufacturers, again, I'll use that term, who are talking to the four confirmed next-gen LMP2 manufacturers, and they aren't building LMP2 cars anymore, John. They're building DPIs, LMDHs, call them what you will, to manufacture specifications. Is the danger that LMDH, being a global formula, is great because we get the convergence, but effectively we kill LMP2? There is a concern on that for sure, especially even just looking at what teams are looking to run LMDH cars. There's a lot of interested LMP2 teams with a customer model, with a paying driver per se, that would love to be in the top class in whatever series it may be. So I think there is definitely a concern, but I had some chats with um, manufacturer constructor representatives from Dallara and Orica, and they both have not don't seem to be concerned about the future of LMP2. From what I understand, the 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 tubs are, you know, the design of the monocoque and the design of certain components are already locked in for LMDH, and that'll have to be carried over into the new LMP2 car. Exactly. Um, so there's not, it's not like a free-for-all right now where all these OEMs get full reign and full control over what they want for these cars it's there's a certain amount of components that are going to have to be shared um uh, between bmw and cadillac for instance which will both be dallara based lmdhs and then the entire car is going to be shared minus the bodywork um between the volkswagen group manufacturers with the multimatic concern but um yeah i think this is you, you put it right that it is it is a bit of a 180 degree twist compared to how it was before because when 2017 came along, you had LMP2 debuting alongside DPI. So you had the, the, the two platforms, the two classes rolling out at the same time. And now with LMP2 being delayed by a year, that does add some question marks over what it could look like mm. the following season. Is there an opportunity for the ACO to add a manufacturer or two who are LMP2 only? Or does that muddy the waters? I don't think there's an opportunity because if they if they add it 
just for LMP2 only, then why didn't they get the chance to build LMDHs? Yeah, that's a good point. So it, yeah. it, I don't think that would And that's work. where the money is, because all their development yeah. costs are going to be paid by a manufacturer. I said there was there was uh, Monty's question there. By the way, Dave Olcott was was asking that question as well about LMP2. Uh, um, what do you reckon then? Who will come? If 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 we were having the dis- this discussion in October 2022, end of my, end of, end of the end of the season, who do we expect to turn up from the, the what we now would term WEC teams or manufacturers to the Rolex in 2023? Ooh, that's a tough one. how <laughs> surely. If they're able to come to an agreement with the the commercial IMSA agreement, yeah, I, I would think Glickenhaus. Um, I would think Toyota would be there as well. Um, they they seem very keen on, on doing that race for sure. And Ferrari, who knows? Mm. It, it's so unpredictable with Ferrari sometimes. I think <laughs> it's um, especially in, in the North American market. It, it doesn't seem like they have always really supported any any teams over here compared to what they've done in Europe. So, um, but then again, the Rolex Twenty Four is a is a pinnacle race, and that could be the cars race debut then if they end up Ooh, yeah. doing it in 23 because that's when the program comes online in WEC so and they've got um, history at that nice... race they have history at that race yeah, don't they? yeah yeah and it could be a good warm-up for Sebring says to see what needs to be done before then so yeah I, I, th- I think we would definitely I think it's safe to say we'll see a mix of LMH and LMDH I don't think it'll be all one platform that's for sure John, I could sit and talk to you, or stand as I am at the moment, and talk to you for ages. Uh, I've so missed um, having even the briefest of chats with you while we've been dashing through Marion's or wherever in uh, racetracks or in other uh, areas of racetracks around the world. Uh, John DeGeese, founder and uh, uh, editor of Sportscar365. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed that, John. Thanks for joining us on Midweek Motorsport. No problem. Thanks for having me on. John DeGeese then, and you can find uh, lots of coverage of all of that story over on Sportscar365. And, of course, John will be covering the uh, the WEC race uh, as well uh, this weekend from Monza. Uh, you're listening to Midweek Motorsport. It is Series 16, Episode 28. Uh, let's talk about tomorrow night. We uh, already mentioned uh, on the grid. What about Simcast? Well, uh, it's Jordan uh, is uh, on tomorrow night, and we're going to try to get him not to talk about the Goodwood Festival of Speed for an hour or so. He's been bubbling ever since he was uh, down there at the uh, at the weekend. Uh, we've had uh, the guys have had early access to uh, F1 2021, the deluxe edition buyers, uh, ahead of uh, Friday's full release. There'll be a full release on next week's show once Jordan and Ben have tried it. R Factor 2, the kart sim, has had new content uh, in the form of some new uh, tracks uh, there as well. Uh, including Wilton Mill, just up the road from here, Lark, uh, Lark Hall, uh, Lark Hill, Spinswera International, Wackersdorf as well in Germany, uh, PBR Shader updates, new carts as well, including a cadet cart. Got Nick Damon on to find out how good they are. Uh, we'll be talking. Uh, oh, and the first shifter cart as well. NASCAR 21. Uh, is out. Uh, Ignition Sport, uh, IGN spoke to Motorsport Games about the uh, upcoming 2021 NASCAR game, which will fe- feature the new RF2 physics and Unreal Engine. Assetto Corsa, 
support for Peugeot on the release of the new hypercar. That prompts speculation of what a partnership between the two could mean. Fanatec confirmed a partnership. They've been busy, haven't they? Gran Turismo this time. And finally, Test Drive Unlimited Solar Crown. Game revealed to be set in a one-to-one recreation of Hong Kong Island. One-to-one in Hong Kong. And we're releasing 2022. Uh, that's Simcast starting off Thursday, uh, tomorrow night, 8 o'clock. Nick Damon is back with us. Hello, Nick. Hello, John. Hello, everyone. How are you all? And Shea Adam is still with us. Hello, Shea. Hi. Did you get all that stuff from John? That's fascinating stuff, isn't it? All of that. That was uh, That's yeah. really opened my eyes and ears. Very good. Yeah, really interesting. Makes your brain start ticking over a lot and putting little pieces together here and there that you never even thought about before. Mm. Don't forget tonight, straight after this show, at 15 years, 100 victories, Joe Tandy Racing, Nick Tandy in conversation with me. That comes up next. But let's go to Formula One. Hooray again. See, I thought the first one was the sprint. Wait, oh, so you want a sprint? You want a sprint hooray? Well, you had a sprint hooray, Shirley. That was that was you know that wasn't the big hooray, was it? Well, but that was the hooray. No, the, the, you can't have it never never overworking. You can have a never in the field hoorays. Has one been used twice in a show? <laughs> uh, Silverstone at the weekend, British Grand yeah, Prix, um, almost a full crowd. Good. Oh, is it a full crowd? In fact, now is full it? crowd, good weather, um, and. The sprint. The sprint. It, it, the sprint has affected a change to what is normally a fairly well tried and tested and laid down timetable um, because everything's moved back a bit, hasn't it? Uh, well, yes, because they, they because of Friday now features something that actually matters to real people, which is the the, quali- the traditional qualifying, the elimination three-part qualifying, um, they've decided to put on at 6 o'clock local time, so 7 o'clock in uh, Central Europe, uh, so people can actually watch it when they got home from work. So, yes, they've made, therefore, obviously, everything else has shuffled on, so first practice is uh, a little bit later as well. But, of course, because they have to change their gearbox in between first practice and second practice, they, they, they'll be busy in between those two anyway. Um, yeah, it was, it's, 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 a, it's a very different program. We've got Formula 2, we've got um, W Series as well, uh, no Porsche Super Cup this weekend because of COVID. So, um, ah, still, so, still a... so we've got a Masters historic race and we've got some historic Formula One cars, including Zach Brown. Yes, they don't, they, 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 there was a kind of a fear about having historic cars at uh, it's only a demo. F1 races. Um, ooh, all through Birdie's area. He didn't, didn't, didn't want to look back at any point. But they've got a couple of... Yeah, obviously, the uh, demo which Alonso did in last year at um, Yasmin went down very well. So yeah, they, they, they were trying to entertain the vast crowds. Mm. Uh, Red Bull come into it on a roll. Oh, by the way, the, the uh, Grand Prix starts later as well. It starts at three o'clock UK time, doesn't it? I haven't. I'm sorry, I hadn't seen that one actually. I didn't realize that they've started because that's four. Why are they so interesting? That's four o'clock. Um, uh, uh, it is the finish of the Tour de France, so maybe they're trying to get away from that. You're right. As well, it is three o'clock. I had not noticed. Um, spring qualifying's at half past four, and the race itself is three. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. I've spent all show. It's not what you said. It's the oh, sorry. sprint. The sprint. Well, this is the problem. They haven't even managed to get a unified um, uh, broadcasting uh, statement. We, 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 I, went, I went to my go-to place for timetables. I went sprint qualifying. Uh, <laughs> well, so I, I only know because of a, of a um, TV 
production meeting that I was in last weekend where we ended up talking about next weekend that I wasn't involved in and, and everybody was talking about what they had to call it. So well, you, still it you talked about it. Yeah. Well, you know, I, uh, well, I think anyway, I may have influenced that. I don't know. Yeah. Just to exp- anyway, so the sprint is going to be a third of the distance of a Grand Prix. Um, and it's going to be half points. No, nothing like that. Uh, just three points for the winner, two points for the second, and one point for third. Are we? It's either going to be a, it's either going to be chaos or a procession. Right, that, that's the, that's the question. I have seen. Right, so I understand why they've done the sprint because they want people to drive flat out. They do it's, There's no pit stops. There's no requirement to use. Um, all of the Pirelli tyres. It's basically bang a set of tyres on, bang enough fuel to get to the end, and flat out all the way. Except it might not be. Well, I, I don't know about the, the relative speed. It's, it's really more about are people going to go for overtaking manoeuvres? And mm. realistically, if you're if you're fifth, do you really want to risk everything going for fourth when there's no points involved with it? It's just you're going to start one place further on the grid, which is actually the dirty side the following day. Yeah, that's that's it. I mean, obviously, if 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 you're one of the top drivers, you know, you or even a medium top driver, no, it's less tyres this weekend. Fewer. Well, there's um, fewer sets of tyres. Yeah. Do you so so if you went out in the sprint race and you, you know, thirteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth, whatever, and you're not going to get the the points for the top, and you're not really going to affect your your starting position for the Grand Prix, why wouldn't you just park it and save wear and tear and a set of tyres? Because you'll drop down the 20th rather than being 15th. What happens if six cars all come in at the end of the first lap and park up? Well, they're, not, they're not going to, are they? There's no gentleman's agreement that's going to enable that to happen. Mm. Um, yeah, they, the only people that's going to really benefit are people who qualify out of position. So they get an extra few laps to, to, to make up some positions they would have to otherwise make up in the main race. Okay. So say you do a Ricardo again, qualifies in 16th for some reason, you, know, you could probably make up to eighth or ninth in the first race, the sprint, the sprint event, therefore gives them a chance to get through. I'm not a massive um, fan of this. Um, I am happy to be proven wrong, but I think it's going to be a nice chance to see lots of cars going round in a line. <laughs> okay. Uh... You, know how, you know how, like Formula 3, but with you know, four times the power and a hundred times the cost. Okay. Uh Red Bull come into this on a roll. Um, Max Verstappen, yep. particularly, uh, they've got decent history at Silverstone. They've got the best package now, according to you. So no point in um, uh, no point in Mercedes even rolling the cars down the A43, is there? Well, uh, you know, they come from the Red Bull ring where they've always been traditionally strong and they absolutely dominated. Um, they go to Silverstone. Well, yes, they did win one race last year, but that was entirely down to. Um, tyres, which isn't the situation in this one. Um, in fact, they even have even more beefy. They had the new construction rears, so they, they, the, uh, it, the actual pace of the car was slower at Silverstone last year, um, and so they have an upgrade. So I think the rather large gap that opened up in Austria uh, will at least be smaller if it isn't actually extinguished. The uh, Which team claims which teams claim they will be disadvantaged by the format of the the race weekend yeah i've read this there's a couple of the midfield teams in there are having a bit of a whinge about it aren't they i i've come with the exact specs behind it but there's a kind of thing saying it's just gonna it's just gonna use bits and parts up and they're not gonna gain anything by it and they've got anything to lose nothing to win there's no point at the end of it that's what i was saying um but they're not gonna park it because they still don't want to qualify 20 20th if you have Um, a problem early on honestly if you have a problem earlier on 
and you drop half a lap back, you might as well park it. If you if you you know have any kind of issue getting off the start, just park it. Safe thing. Well, I think I think that might well happen. Yeah, I think I think if people Ferrari and Alf, Ferrari and Alfa Tauri, Tauri, by the way, are are uh, particularly. Um, Mattia Benito is not very happy with the concept. To be honest, so Benito. What did I say? Benito. Did I? <laughs> yes. Hmm, different, different Italian tie, wasn't it? Um, so, uh, yes, be careful. I'm not, I'm, I'm not feeling anti-Italian because of Sunday at all. No, uh, no I'm not. I, actually, I'm not. I thought they've. I, that, the uh, that, leave it. Move on. One. Move on. Still hurting. Still hurting. Um, Football's yeah, gone to rub. Uh, a, yes. Move on. But anyway, <laughs> oh yes, just, just drifting into that area now. But uh, anyway, yeah, I, 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 I want to be proven wrong, but I don't think I will be. So, uh, so Max wins again, or do we actually get a battle in the actual race on Sunday? I think in the actual race, it'll be close enough to have something happening and not a rump away at the front. I think, you know, you'd have to say it's more likely Max, but it's close enough where, you know, a very minor error might change things around okay. or a magic setup. But okay. I think the fact is the fact that it's going to be quite warm and quite pleasant doesn't make it any easier for Mercedes. Okay, uh, and I think that's it from you. Uh, Dave Alcock says, totally agree with Nick. Don't see the point of the sprint. If you want exciting qualifying, think European Le Mans series, 15-minute shootout, great idea and great TV. Well, you know, started by the American Le Mans series, 15-minute shootouts. Um, nothing, you know, nothing wrong with, the thing is, there's nothing, nothing wrong, wrong with the F1 qualifying as it is. It actually totally works agree. really well. Hence, the reasons last a really long time. Whenever they try to change it, it's been an unmitigated disaster. Mm. I do feel there's an element where a selection of executives... Uh, sit around the table with coffee and biscuits and a selection of pastries and, and change things for the sake of it. What, you mean answering questions that no one's answered? Uh, asked, yeah. rather. Yeah, and there's this concept that no, everyone's attention span is four minutes now. I think it's very uh, disingenuous wrong. to people. Um, but Well, look, look, at, look at the audience for the football, which went 30, nearly, you know, nearly an hour over. So there we go. Anyway, Nick, enjoy the mm. weekend. Uh, we'll oh, let you get away. Thank you. Thank you, Nick Damon, our Formula One correspondent, the man who talks about Formula One. Hooray! There we go. That was more of a sprint hooray. I like that. Uh, let's finish tonight with some uh, some coverage that we have for you the uh, at the weekend uh, with thanks to John DeGeese and to uh, Nick Damon and uh, uh, Andy uh, Marriott earlier on. Uh, as as well uh, as uh, our guests from the rookie season, Shea Adam is with us to wrap things up tonight. It is the Northeast Grand Prix on Friday and Saturday, as you mentioned. It's a pretty tight weekend, but both the races on Saturday. We've got qualifying live in sound and vision <laughs> on Friday for WeatherTech. Now, yes. uh, the WeatherTech qualifying which used to be all action and quick fire, has rather been stretched a little bit with the two GTD qualifying sessions, which, again, if you ask me, and I'll, I'll say this to John Thunen if I'm asked, that's an answer to a question that I don't know that anybody's asked. But it means we've got now just two sessions because we've got the GTDs going for positions and then the GTDs going for points joined by the GT Le Mans. So actually, it fits into, what, a 40, 45-minute window on Friday. 
Yes, but um, I am the unofficial uh, weather girl of uh, IMSA Radio, and there is a very strong chance of thunderstorms at Ooh. 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Lovely. So, Lime Rock qualifying could be awesome. And then we go into the race day on Saturday, and starting at noon, we get, again, a high risk of thunderstorms. So, this whole nice little neat weekend that we have planned out could be completely wet and wild, and the bull ring in the rain... Yeah, that's awesome. And a, a number of teams who are taking it on for the first time. Let's talk about WeatherTech. First of all, look through the entry okay. list. What jumps out at you in WeatherTech? We, we've got the two Corvettes, um, uh, and we've got WeatherTech uh, after their weekend to forget at, at, uh, at Watkins Glen, a couple of weekends mm. to forget. Um, so the interest really does fall on the GT Daytonas. What's going on in GTD? Correct. And and I, I should say for the record, um, Ferrari Challenge this weekend is racing at Indy. I don't know that Cooper McNeil is actually taking part in that race meeting because ah. the logistics of getting back and forth between the two was going to be so great. There was an open test today. Cooper was not participating in it and his car was not shown up as being in the pit lane. So I don't know if he's actually not entered for that this weekend, but that is the big question mark as far as GTLM is concerned. GTD, we've got all of the usual features as far as our players in this game. Um, a couple of things that stand out to me. I've gone through and looked at the BOP. There is no change as far as uh, GTD is concerned from Watkins Glen to Lime Rock, but I've done the comparisons to the cars as they ran in 2019 to how they're running this coming weekend. And uh, of course, only the cars that were running then as to how they are now, so you can't do things for the Aston, for say. Um, but the Audi was not represented in the race in 2019. They are represented this weekend with Carbon. They are 45 kilograms lighter than the car ran in 2019. It's the biggest weight shift that we have seen overall. But the big two that stand out to me, the Porsche, which won, uh, what, two of the last four races we've had at Lime Rock Park, they are 35 kilograms heavier than they ran at Lime Rock two years ago. Seven millimeters smaller restrictor and two liters more of fuel. That is a big change. Compare that to the Acura GTD machine. Mario Farnbacher, remember, just a nose behind Dennis Olsen at the line. It was a phenomenal finish. That Acura is five kilograms lighter than it was in 2019 with one liter more of fuel. But the interesting thing, there are teams that have never done well at Lime Rock. Mm. If you look at Lexus, they have one top five finish out of six starts. BMW with this M6 GT3 machine that they run, they've been on the podium podium finish in six starts so a lot of these teams that are looking strong in the championship a lot of these teams that are resurging they've got this giant thorn in their side and that thorn is that they don't do well at this track for whatever reason again i bring up the promise of rain hmm. and we know that porsches do well at this track and lamborghinis do well at the track but what's going to happen when the wet stuff starts falling yeah uh and Mission Pilot Challenge, of course, is the second race. Actually, it's the first race on Saturday. Um, and it is the first race on Saturday, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Um, yes it am, am I right as well that, that NBC don't have live coverage of WeatherTech? It's only us that has the live coverage of WeatherTech. They're doing it on tape delay, are they? You are correct. I saw something on Twitter that I found very confusing the other exactly. day that Lime Rock tweeted something about the race starting at 5.30, and I went, no, the race is going to be finished at 5.30. So, yeah, you're correct. 
Uh, hello to B- Blue Fiend, who is in Atlanta and is in the rooftop bar uh, at the Kempton Hotel next to Porsche as he's watching the airport uh, operations and having a, a little pint uh, there, or at least he has been there uh, in the past. And uh, I know he's, he's doing some training at the moment. Uh, all right, you mentioned no BOP changes for WeatherTech. Uh, however, that's not the case in Pilot Challenge, particularly not in TCR. <laughs> yes, um, Honda has put on a great deal of weight, so I guess they've been feeding their drivers a bit too much pizza. Maybe um, it's 60 kilograms now between the first Watkins Glen race up to the where they will be starting at Lime Rock Park. But the Alpha got a weight break. I think it was five kilograms that they've lost uh, in between the races. So the, the fluctuation continues on the cars. There was a change as well for the uh, Hyundai Elantra, I think it was, or maybe it was the Veloster. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but there have been a couple of BOP adjustments for that series as they're still trying to find a happy medium there but it is interesting that when you look at the manufacturers championship particularly in tcr hyundai have been cleaning up the last couple of years as far as the manufacturer is concerned right now they're third in the standings and they've got a bit of work to do to try and get back ahead of audi and honda bop is not going to make that difference racing is going to make that difference um driver wise anything to report there Yes, we have a new car this weekend. Well, first off, driver-wise, you asked. Um, Riley Motorsports, they have both of their Toyotas back, which is good. They got the second car from AIM Autosport north of the border. So the 21 will be running again this weekend. But uh, Alfredo Najiri has another co-driver for this weekend. It's Sasha Fenstra out of Argentina. So continuing with the Latin American drivers for that car, they found somebody new to draft into that position. Can't wait to see how that goes. Um, Not Lad Racing is back. The car that won the four hour race Stephen McAleer and Patrick Gallagher once again in that Aston Martin and then a new team as I previewed at, mm-hmm. uh, got ahead of myself there Auto Technic Racing they're doing a BMW GT4 they're a team that run in World Challenge and they're or um, GT America TC um, yeah, whatever. Yeah, can't can't remember the series name. Sorry, um, but they run in that series two Connecticut-based drivers, so they're familiar with the track. They've got more than a month in between their races, wow. so why not come and play in the Michelin Pilot Challenge? See if you like it. See how the rules are, and uh, dip a toe in the water potentially for some future involvement. Yeah. Uh, what about GS then, the GT4 teams? Where Are, are there any changes there? Any new people? Actually, I've just realised I forgot to mention Inception in the uh, WEC ranks as well, but we'll get onto them. Um, the boys will get onto that <laughs> at the weekend. Um, there are let me see, two driver changes in TCR as well that we need to hit on. Uh, Carl Whitmer, as you rightly pointed out, I completely missed it during the Watkins Glen. He's back with VGMC. He is their co-driver uh, with Victor Gonzalez along in the Honda again. And then Scott Smithson out of Utah joining up with Ryan Eversley once again. So the uh, magical rotating second chair of the 94 game continues again this weekend. And uh, three drivers doing double duty. Why is that relevant? It's a different track. It's Mm. slightly longer for the GS cars than it is for the the GT3 cars, I should say. I was making that more complicated to myself. Pilot Challenges track with not running the chicane is 1.478 miles long. The WeatherTech track is 1.474. So Trent Hinman, Robbie Foley, and Bill Oberlin will need to remember which version of the track they're on. (laughs) 
Yeah, I don't think it matters to those two. They just drive fast wherever they are. So weather is definitely, well, on the horizon, if not absolutely playing. We've had these events before, though, where it's threatened at Lime Rock Park Mm. and nothing's come of it this year. No, it's it's summer, it's July, it's Lime Rock, it's it's raining there now. Um, I can tell you that I got a phone call from somebody at the track first thing Monday morning. They had to pause their setup because it was raining so hard. So oh, this wow. is very aggressive summer rain that's running through. Um, it's light rain today. Tomorrow it's going to be partly sunny, so mostly cloud cover. But when the thunderstorms roll through Friday afternoon, they're going to come with a vengeance. They're going to hang around. There are thunderstorms forecast for Friday, Saturday, and then rain for the rest of the week after we've left. So it's big storms rolling through the northeast. Yeah, yuck, yuck, yuckety yuck. There's a few places. Hot and humid. Uh, there, there are a few places where you don't want to go off there. Shea, thanks for being with us. Uh, thanks to uh, all of our guests this evening. Coming up next, we celebrate 15 years of Joe Tandy racing. 100 victories clocked up in the last month or so. Nick Tandy in conversation with me. Uh, Tim Gray back on duty up in London, uh, putting uh, twiddling all the knobs and making sure that we went to the world. Uh, Responsible adult, Eve Hewitt. I'm John Hindorf. Be back next week. This weekend, Friday and Saturday, IMSA on RS2 via IMSAradio.com. Saturday and Sunday, WEC from Monza with Johnny Palmer, Bruce Jones and me, John Hindorf. Have a good Thursday and tune in from 8 and we'll speak to you over the weekend. But for now, the llama... Oh, oh no, Dolly, Dolly, don't do that. Oh, she's converged. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. For more, subscribe to Midweek Motorsport wherever you get your podcasts.